Let's get started with some prayer. God, we praise your name and we thank you that you're sovereign God who knows the beginning and the end, who not only knows it, but has uh, appointed these things. That we think about what Revelation says, that uh, Jesus is the lamb who was slain and the names of those who are written in the book of life have been written there from before the foundation of the world. And we thank you of the, for the way that speaks to church history and uh, just your sovereign grace on the lives of your people. I pray that we would be encouraged by looking at this stuff again this morning in Christ's name for his sake. Amen. Okay, so we're in part six still, the denominational church, and we're going to pick up about midway through page three. We finished by kind of talking about pietism and Count Zinzendorf, and now we're going to go into the Puritans. And I mentioned this along the way. I think this class is going to end up being like almost 18 weeks long, but that's only 18 hours of content. And you think about squeezing 2,000 years of church history into 18 hours. I'm actually always disappointed of the level of depth that we go to. It's, it's never sufficient. But what are you going to do? Real, before we get to the Puritans, though, I want to go back to uh, Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf for a second um, because he has a quote that has always stuck out to me that I love. I think it's a little ironic, and I've probably mentioned it in my teaching at one point before, but he had the, this saying, preach Christ, die, and be forgotten which I think just speaks to his desire for the, the nations to hear the gospel of Christ. It's about Jesus, not Count Zinzendorf, right? Not about Grady, not about any of us. Now, the irony is that we know that Zinzendorf said it, so he's not been forgotten. But still, he preached Christ, and that's an encouragement. Okay, so moving to the Puritans. Um, the Puritans probably more accurately span like 1550 to 1660. And much could be said about the Puritans. The Puritans, we shouldn't think of them like a denomination, okay? We've talked about denominations. Puritanism wouldn't fall into a denomination. It included Anglicans, which that's the Church of England, Separatists. It included Independents, Presbyterians, Baptists. So it was definitely distinct from a denomination. And Puritanism actually really began in England and then the Puritans found themselves in Amsterdam, and then from Amsterdam sort of back to England and then to the Americas. Um, and their movement was essentially a reform movement as well. So here's a quick quote on the mindset of the Puritans. Puritanism grows out of the individual's conviction that they have been personally saved by God, elected to salvation by a merciful God for no merit of their own. And that as a consequence of this election, they must lead a life of visible piety, must be a member of a church modeled on the pattern of the New Testament, and must work to make their community and nation a model Christian society. So that's by a historian named John Spur, who's written quite a bit on them. Uh, like I mentioned, it was born out of the English Reform Reformation after England split from Roman Catholicism. And uh, the, what, what happened was England didn't reform the Anglican church to the degree that the Puritans would have liked to see. 
So there were still some things about church practice. One, one particular issue especially was the Book of Common Prayer. The Anglican Church established that as its liturgical worship form, and the Puritans were like, no, we should just go back to Scripture. Um, the Anglican Church went mostly to the format of the Book of Prayer, and the Puritans wanted it to be just more scriptural in nature. And uh, so this was, so, they, it wasn't their desire to like start a new movement or even, you know, sort of like Luther, he didn't want to split the church. That wasn't their desire either. They just wanted to see more reform come to the reformed church of England. So the Puritans sought both to bring a theological and personal purity to the church. I mean, hence the name Puritan. And uh, it began in England, and then eventually, because of persecution, they ended up in the Americas. And really, that's where we get the idea of like the pilgrims. They were looking for a place where they could practice their faith without persecution, mostly, most significantly, without government intervention in their worship. And that's where we get the sort of American ideal of the First Amendment, the free exercise of religion, where the government Congress shall make no law pertaining to the free practice of religion. Um, so some characteristics of the Puritan movement, it was predominantly a movement of spirituality. I think when you, like if you've read uh, The Scarlet Letter, that's a, a, an English literature book, or you've read The Crucible that deals with like Salem, Massachusetts and the Salem Witch Trials, the Puritans are routinely, or I mean, I guess, uh, if you've heard of the um, the Handmaid's Tale is supposedly modeled after Puritanism, that sort of world. Our culture thinks of the Puritan movement in a very pejorative way. It, it wasn't a good thing. They thought that it was an attempt by the church to moralistically dominate people's lives. The Puritans wouldn't have recognized that at all. It was a moralistic society only because it was first a spiritually transformed society. The moral aspect flew out or grew out of the spiritual transformation. Um, so when people criticize the Puritans by saying they were moralists, I'm, sh I'm sure there were some moralists, there always are in religious circles, but that's not the case for most Puritans. And they didn't want to impose a moral law on people. They wanted to see transformed hearts through the work of God. Um, but they did envision a nation guided by biblical influence, only opposed to a church guided by political influence. Okay, so that distinction is really important. You'll hear people say, oh, our, our country was established on a separation of church and state. That's not actually in the Constitution anywhere. It's not in the Declaration of Independence. That comes from the writing of the personal uh, letters of, I believe it was Thomas Jefferson. And what, what they were envisioning is not what you see today, where the state can tell a church you can't meet, but rather uh, a, ch a church that was influencing the state, not the other way around. Okay, That's what they meant by separation of church and state. The state should have no power to determine what the church does. That's what was taking place with Anglicanism in England. But the church should influence the way the politics of a country go. Okay, but they, they stressed, it, that's only a small part of what the Puritans were about. More importantly, they stressed experiencing personal communion with God, not in a worship service, but in a daily relationship with God. This was about personal piety lived out daily out of love for Jesus. 
They had a strong dependence on the Bible as their supreme source of spiritual sustenance and guide for daily life. So there, there you can see we don't want to look to the Book of Common Prayer. We don't want to look to Catholic dogma. We want to look to the scriptures as our source for daily spiritual sustenance. Predominantly, they were Augustinian in their theology. So we talk a lot about Calvinism and Calvinistic theology, the doctrines of grace, the five points of Calvinism. But Calvin got his theology from Augustine, and Augustine would say he got his theology from Paul. So the Puritans would say that they were Augustinian in their theology. And by that we mean they emphasized human sinfulness and divine grace. As opposed to the Catholic Church that ultimately after the Reformation would say, man has pretty much a spark of goodness in him that needs to be fanned into a righteous life that will then make God accept people. Okay. Um, and man, we're seeing our culture shift away from this grounding idea of human sinfulness. I mean, even the way our government is orchestrated, it is built upon the principle that because people are sinful, um, Monica, if you need last week's, that's the one on the left, we're still in that one. And the one on the right is probably where we'll end up today. So, and we're on page four right now. Um, our, our, the way our system of government works, this democratic republic that we have with the separation of powers, the judicial branch, the <laughs> legislative branch, and the executive branch, that all has to do with sort of this Puritan idea that because man is sinful, we need these kinds of checks and balances in a government, okay? They elevated the importance of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. So conversion is a work of God, not the work of the church. Um, that's going to tie into the next point there, which says they stood against the sacramentalism of the Catholic and the Anglican Church. So within Catholicism, literally, in order to be saved, you have to partake of the sacraments. They are salvific in nature. Whereas the Puritans would say, no, it is the Holy Spirit that brings you into a right relationship with God. And then through ongoing divine grace grows you in sanctification and holiness. And that's an ongoing work of the Spirit of God in people. The church supplements that, or the church supports that, but the church is not the source of that. That distinction is important. Uh, it saw itself, I already mentioned, as a revival movement. So some summary of, of the beliefs of the Puritans in the middle there of page four. They highlighted preaching. This was a big thing for them. Again, going back to the reformers like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli. Um, rather than church forms. You know, if you go to Catholic church, in some places, they're still done in Latin. The mass is still done in Latin. Well, that doesn't help anybody who doesn't speak Latin. The Puritans wanted preaching that would actually speak to people. And theologically, they wanted practical theology for people. So this wasn't an academic thing. It wasn't like a high church thing like Anglicanism. It was meant to help people form theology that would inform their daily lives. They did exposition of scripture, so that's just moving your way slowly through the Bible, teaching kind of verse by verse, and they stressed the importance of a hunger for God's word. They were, they had covenant theology, so I don't know that we've talked too much about covenant theology, other than I think I mentioned that Presbyterians hold to covenant theology. But covenant theology, in short, is this idea that God relates to his people through covenants, in the Old Testament, he related to specifically the nation of Israel through covenant. 
And the Puritans would say that they were just the continuation of God's covenant people in the new covenant. So they really saw, even in some ways, in the move to um, to the Americas, to uh, the U.S., what wouldn't have been the U.S. at that point, to the new land, New England, they saw themselves really as sort of like an, an exodus people coming out and forming sort of a new society of God's people in covenant with him. Um, I'm not covenant theology. I, I don't hold to that view, but that would be their view. They were largely Calvinistic. It's an overstatement to say that all the Puritans were Calvinistic. There were some that held a more Arminian view, but most of the ones you've heard of, John Bunyan, John Knox, um, uh, I can't think of the others. You know, this, there, there were also Scottish Puritans. Um, I'm drawing a blank, so I'm just going to move on. But mostly Calvinistic. I mean, most of the stuff that you would read from the Puritans today is going to be Calvinistic in its theology. Uh, they held to uh, the idea of like God's continuing sanctification and the certainty of sanctification leading to assurance. You can know that you belong to God. You're a child of God. You should be assured of your salvation. And the proof of that is your ongoing sanctification. They were Sabbatarian. So, you know, this may be some of the reason why they're they're labeled as being like legalistic or moralistic. They held to keeping the Sabbath on Sundays. They also believe, Moshe, if you want to grab the notes there, they're, they're taking one of each of those. Can I ask you something real quick? Yeah. You, you were saying that, 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 that the government, right, they were like, oh, were they more the, theonomistic? Are they, were they were like trying to influence the government or was it just a call to holiness and that was kind of doing it? I mean, as, as the, you know, I mean, were they trying to actively, because I know you said Augustinian. Well, they they would they were actively <laughs> attempting to influence gov the way the things were governed through um, through Christian biblical principles and Christian ideals, but theonomist no. Did they think that a government should be run like with the Old Testament laws? No, but did they think that a government should press a nation towards holiness? Yes. Um, but they didn't think that the government should have a say in what the church was doing, okay? So it worked one way and not the other. And actually, I should point out that um, the first, the Massachusetts colony, the first colony there in Plymouth was um, basically socialistic. They, they attempted to have a society like Acts chapter two, where everybody shared everything in common. The problem with that is if not everybody is truly converted, people eventually begin to look out for themselves and it falls apart. So the Plymouth Colony, their like founding documents were more or less socialistic. It didn't last very long. And uh, that kind of fell apart. Okay, they believed in the regulative principle. So the regulative principle, and there are still people who hold this today, particularly within like conservative Presbyterian churches, but the regulative principle is we should do nothing in corporate worship that is not expressly commanded in the New Testament. So most people who hold to the regulative principle would say we shouldn't use musical instruments because there's no command in the New Testament that says we should use musical instruments. Um, I, I'm more of the position that if it's not expressly forbidden, then it's an area of freedom. You must do the things that scripture commands 
and you are free to do the things that scripture does not forbid. Okay, does that make sense? All right. Uh, and they had a real end time optimism. I mean, like like lots of generations, they saw themselves as living in the end times. They thought that they were kind of going to usher in the the kingdom of God in the way that they established their Puritan Puritan society. Well, just because I know the post mill people kind of feel like that that's their thing. They're not. They're more optimistic than pessimistic. And right. That's why I was wondering because I've heard that from the Puritans. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they, I, I mean, I guess I don't know their eschatology specifically, but yeah, they probably would be more, more aligned with like post mill. Okay. So the Plymouth Plantation, there you go. That's that's what I was referring to earlier. They arrived in 1620, in November of 1620. And again, they were separatists who thought that the Church of England was idolatrous. They were looking for the religious freedom that would come with a new land far away from the the religious oversight of the Church of England. They had a congregational approach. So there you can even see kind of the socialism idea. Their, their approach to church leadership was congregational, which is more like everybody kind of gets a vote, everybody gets a say, and there's not any sort of, of like leadership body over the church. I mean, there was still a pastor, uh, but it was it was more congregational. And actually, if you go to New England today, when I was when I lived in Boston and went to school there, the church that I went to at first was a congregational church. So it's it's still deeply rooted in the churches of that area. Uh, but they had very strict, exclusive membership. You could not just attend a, a, a Puritan church. You had to be a member, and the membership was very stringent. I mean, they, they made sure that you were abiding by the principles of membership. Um, local congregations were autonomous, so they rejected the idea, again, of the Anglican Church that the Archbishop of Canterbury would be the head guy over the church and the King of England even slightly above him. And they were very family-focused. They saw the importance of the family. You can see a lot of American kind of at least founding ideals there. Uh, 102 people from England uh, went to Amsterdam and then eventually to Plymouth. And by the spring, half of those people were dead. It was a brutal start to the American colonies. They would eventually grow, but grow more from people continuing to immigrate to the Americas than you know, the slow growth of families growing. We mentioned uh, an, already a note on sort of the modern views of the Puritans. You know, they're, they're largely criticized by a secular culture as, well, you, you've probably heard the word puritanical as an insult. Um, you know, if you believe in traditional family values, you're puritanical. If you believe that abortion is bad, you're, you're puritanical. Um, well, we embrace the insults of a secular society as a, as a form of pride, I guess. Moving on from there, the Great Awakening and Jonathan Edwards. Uh, we're skipping quite a lot to get to this point. I mean, by this, by this point, you really have many colonies already established in America. The Great Awakening, though, uh, was both in the Americas and in England. Um, we tend to focus on it from an American perspective, and it was probably more predominant in America than it was in England, but the Great Awakening was present in both of those countries. It really begins, at least in the, in the Americas, with Jonathan Edwards, 
who was a, a very staunch Calvinist. He was trained at Yale. I think this is kind of interesting that most of the Ivy League schools were founded originally as seminaries to train pastors. Uh, look how far they've come. If you go to Princeton Seminary now, be prepared to leave there a Universalist Unitarian who doesn't believe in anything and definitely doesn't think the Bible is God's inspired word. But Jonathan Edwards was trained at Yale. He was convinced that Christians should have a strong experience of personal conversion. So I think this is really interesting. Jonathan Edwards was an incredibly heady guy. Uh, some would say that he is America's greatest thinker, that he has the most brilliant mind that America has yet produced, um, certainly in the area of theology, if not in other, other areas as well. He, he wrote quite a bit. Um, but this is interesting because we tend to think of Jonathan Edwards as a super intellectual guy. And if you read any of his stuff, you'll get that feeling. One, one book or one um, thing that I would recommend would be a work called A Divine and Supernatural Light by Jonathan Edwards. You can look it up online and read it. It's tough reading, but it's not super long and it's really good. But it's very intellectual. I mean, it's very deep. Um, but it's interesting to think that Edwards thought that Christians should have an experience, an experiential uh, encounter with God. Uh, sometimes today, sort of the high theological circles and the Calvinistic circles kind of poo-poo experiential Christianity. And there's a reason for that. There's churches that overdo that. But uh, Edwards himself would say that, ex that Christianity should have an experiential piece to it. So while he was preaching a sermon that most people have at least heard of called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which go read that sometime. It's, it's pretty amazing the response that it elicited from his people. He recounts people, you know, falling down in the aisles and weeping and wailing in response to him preaching this sermon. At one point, he talks about how people are like, like spiders dangling over the flame of a candle you know, about to incur God's judgment and it's coming any moment. And I mean, if you read it, you would, let me put it this way. If I preached that sermon on Sunday, you would probably fall asleep and be bored out of your mind. But in response to that, uh, the people in his church experienced this incredible movement of the Spirit of God. And it was more than just a momentary thing. It would, it would spark a real revival in uh, New England. And... He pressed for the expectation that there would be real supernatural changes in people's lives as a result of them encountering God. Increased attention to devotional practices. One of the things that I look for when I'm trying to gauge where somebody is at spiritually, if they're even really a Christian, if I can put it in those terms, is whether or not they actually enjoy reading God's word, if they're hungry to kind of understand it. And you know, that ebbs and flows. But what I'm beginning to see is that when people really, well, I just met with a guy last week. Did I mention this? This 98-year-old guy who I had um, lunch with, and he told me that when he became a Christian, he couldn't read. He was 19 years old, and he couldn't read. I did mention this last week. Okay, but, but when he met Jesus, he wanted to read the Bible, and so he taught himself to read just so he could read the Bible. 
right? And then you hear some people who are like, yeah, I go to church, but like, I don't read my Bible. It's boring. I, I don't get it. And I'm not suggesting that people who say that are not Christians. I'm just saying, I think one absolute certain sign that somebody is a believer is they begin to treasure God's word. So Edwards, I think, would agree with that. Devotional practices, scripture reading. Um, okay, so here's a quote from, from Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string. And justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. I mean, if anybody ever thinks that I preach harsh, harsh sermons, I'm just going to be like, go read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. This is what today we would label like fire and brimstone preaching. And I think the modern church movement wants to steer away from that because we don't want to offend people. We don't want to hurt people's feelings. And, you know, if, 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 if your church model is to bring people into your church, then I guess that sort of makes sense. The thing that maybe kind of bothers me about that is Edwards preached this sermon to people who thought themselves more or less Christians and the response was an incredible movement of God. And so that's kind of the question is, do we, do we tone down our preaching and teaching because we're afraid of the way people might respond to it? Or do we just boldly proclaim what Scripture says, expecting that the Spirit is going to do what the Spirit does? You know, there's occasions where Jesus preached and, and by the time he was done, I mean, it's John chapter 6, by the time he finished, there was basically nobody around but the disciples. Um, so... Really, the response to preaching is not in our control. It's in the hands of God. And Edward saw this incredible response. Um, moving on, he was eventually fired from his church. Edward, Jonathan Edwards' life kind of ends interestingly. There was a conflict that came up in his church, and he actually handled it poorly. After being there 23 years, they ousted him and sent him packing. He ended up getting hired as the president of the College of New Jersey, which today is Princeton University. And shortly after that, he died of a smallpox in vaccination. <laughs> I guess there's some uh, <coughs> contemporary corollaries here. Jonathan Edwards believed though, that because God is sovereign over creation and God has given man a mind to understand things, that we should do our best to sort of understand and conquer, take dominion over creation. And he actually got the smallpox vaccination to sort of encourage Christians to be bold and trust God and believe that like scientific advancements uh, were a good thing. And, and it was the smallpox and vaccination that ultimately killed him. Now, the vaccinations back then were different than they are now. They were giving like live strains of the vaccine in small quantities. Today, the way we do things is different. We're not giving people like live injections of, of deadly diseases. Um, but there's some, some irony there. And, and I mean, you, you, Jonathan Edwards would say, well, God sovereignly intended him to die at that age. That was his intention. And I would agree with that. But man, what if he'd chosen not to get the smallpox vaccine? Maybe he would have written more. He, he, sort of meant, he sort of mentored, I don't know if that's the right word. He crossed paths too with a guy named um, David Brainerd, 
who I think we'll <laughs> mention just briefly, maybe next week. But David Brainerd was a missionary to the Indians who also died very young in his endeavors to reach the Native Americans uh, as a missionary. And he was kind of one of the four forefathers of like Christian missions to the native peoples of the Americas. Um, you know, kind of another sad story of like, God, why did you take him at a young age? That doesn't make sense to me, but we trust God. He's sovereign and he's good. And I've read some of the journals of David Brainerd and it's inspiring stuff. So maybe God took him young to just inspire the rest of us. I don't know. He wrote a lot about what he called the religious affections. And the theology of Edwards is kind of wrapped up in this. And let's not confuse the religious affections with modern day emotionalism. So if you go to some churches today, you know, they've got the laser lights and the lights are low and they've got the booming music and they've got the fog machine and the temperature is set at a very specific rate. And, you know, there's beautiful images on the screens and that's meant to elicit an emotional response. Edwards, I think, would say that that's contrived, but he he wouldn't say that that the right response to that is a dull, boring church where everybody's stuffy and the seats are painful to sit in so you don't fall asleep. He, he, he would say that the heart should be enamored with Christ. The heart should love Christ. And that should be both captivating to our minds and also to like our spirit, our heart, our soul. So he would write a lot about the religious affections. So he would say true religion, religion is an experience born in the heart, but true religious emotion has a divine source. So you can't manipulate it. You can't, you can't drum it up in people. It's got to come from God. But a real relationship with God is going to produce some kind of emotion. I mean, think about like marriage. If you just stay committed to your spouse because you have a commitment, you have a ring that you wear, you're really kind of missing out on a piece of what it means to actually love somebody, right? Um, he would say religious emotion is caused by the nature of God alone not what a personal understanding of a relation to divine things means to self-interest or a sense of self-worth. Okay, that's deep. Let me summarize it for you. We should love God for God's sake, not for our sake. A right starting place in becoming a Christian is to understand God saves you out of sin and God loves you. But if you think deeply about that, that's ultimately more about me than it is about God. It's about what God has done for me. C.S. Lewis would kind of talk about this in the idea of like enchantment, disenchantment, re-enchantment. I use this idea a lot. So have we talked about it in here? No? Okay. So enchantment is the process of falling in love with something. And initially when you love something, you typically love it for the way that it makes you feel. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but if that's all that your love ends up being is the way that it makes you feel, eventually you get to disenchant. <clears throat> the thing stops making you feel the way that it once made you feel and you slip out of love for it. This is what a lot of couples in their marriage will say, right? We, 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 we just don't love each other anymore. We've fallen out of love. And, uh, and C.S. Lewis, at least, wouldn't deny that that happens. But what he says is when you push through disenchantment, you get to the place called re-enchantment. And re-enchantment is mature love because it loves the object for its own sake, not for my sake. Okay? 
So I think this is kind of what Edwards is getting at is um, our love for God is going to progress to a place where we love God for who he is, not just what he has done for me. I, and I, I would say that I don't think those are like mutually exclusive things. It can be both and. But I think real religious maturity ultimately gets to the point where I say, I love God because he's worth loving. He's glorious. Okay, religious emotion is based on holiness and it focuses on the beauty of God's righteousness. So it's not enough to simply say, I have deep feelings for God. If those feelings don't manifest themselves in holiness and righteousness, then they're suspect. They're just emotionalism. They're not true, affectious religion. And um, that holiness is drawn out of us because God is beautiful and we want to be close to him. Okay, uh, he would say spiritually gifted emotion is based on a proper intellectual understanding of what is holy. You have some movements in, in Christianity, I would say especially sort of like the Assemblies of God or the Pentecostal movement, where theological or intellectual appreciation for God is, is scorned. Um, it's kind of poo-pooed. If, if you go to seminary, you're looked down upon. Not everywhere, so I want to be careful with that, but there are some movements. There's movements like that even within uh, evangelical sort of non-denominational Christianity. You know, you don't need a degree, you just need to be passionate about Jesus. And um, Edwards would say that real emotional affection for God is not divorced from intellectual appreciation for who God is or what he's revealed in his word. He would say spiritually gifted emotion is not proud, but humble. There's probably Calvinists who need to be reminded of that. Um, I mean, all people need to be reminded of that. But there is this temptation, the, the higher up sort of the intellectual uh, ladder you go, the more sort of pride there is in good theology. And um, Edwards would say you need to have good theology, but it should lead you to be humble, not proud. I mean, if you really know who God is, you're not going to be proud. It, uh, spirit-given emotion causes us to be tender, soft-hearted, and it moves us to become more godly, and it's never satisfied with mere emotional experience itself. Think about a guy like Jeremiah, who's told, you're going to be the weeping prophet. Jeremiah, I'm sending you to my people to preach a message of condemnation, and nobody's going to listen to you because it's going to be a hard message. If Jeremiah's love for God or affection for God was only wrapped up in an emotional experience, that dude would have walked away from his calling to be a prophet early, right? But he understood that it's not about the emotional experience itself. And man, why was he the weeping prophet? Well, because he had a tender heart like God. He wept over the people of Israel that they would not repent and turn back to God. And then, of course, true religious affection causes a person to be Christ-like in character. Who's our model for this? Who, who has more affection for God than Jesus himself? Nobody, right? So Jesus walked a life of perfect righteousness and holiness to honor God the Father in obedience to him. And if we really share that same spirit that was in Christ, then we, we too should look like that. All right, so there's a, oh man, a really uh, unfair summary of Edwards for you. 
if you're interested, you can go read his stuff. It's not easy, I'll, I'll admit it. I've not read much of his stuff because it's challenging. Moving on from Edwards, we will talk briefly about George Whitfield. <clears throat> so I mentioned that Revival was also taking place in England. George Whitfield was kind of at the forefront of this. He became a believer in 1735 and very quickly became a minister within the Church of England. And he was just a bold, passionate, moving preacher. And so very quickly, he became established as sort of the forefront, one of the forefronts of, of Christian teachers in his day. And he was bold to teach on justification by faith, the need for repentance and new birth. And he, I don't know that I would go so far as to say that he was a Puritan, but he, he would have been more along the lines of like the Puritan... Um, idea of like continuing reform within the church and true spiritual devotion to God, not just the forms of religious expression that Anglicanism kind of borrowed from Catholicism. <clears throat> he would cross paths with the Wesley brothers. So we already talked about John Wesley, you know, Whitfield would, would sort of influence them to some degree. They would ultimately go different ways because Whitfield was a uh, like a staunch Calvinist, whereas Wesley was Arminian. But, and, and uh, Whitfield would end up in the Americas. He would actually preach at Edwards' <clears throat> Edwards's church at one point, which I think is kind of cool. And man, fascinatingly, by his death in 1770, he had preached around 18,000 sermons. I didn't crunch the numbers to see how many that is a year, but it's a lot. And sometimes he would preach to crowds of as many as ten to 20,000. This is pre-microphone. Yeah, I mean, people, there's some, I've not read it myself, so I've not been back to the text, the source text for this, but I've heard rumors that like he could be heard almost a half a mile away preaching to people when he would do these big preaching things. Um, that sounds exhausting to me. But Whitfield was um, super influential. <clears throat> In, in the Great Awakening and in the church in England and even in the church in America. He's an interesting guy you could spend some more time on, but we're going to press on. So I'm going to kind of wrap up the denominational church part six right there. Any other questions, comments, thoughts? Was it, was it less okay. You think you'll see him in heaven? That was, I mentioned that in oh, class a, a couple of weeks ago. That was actually Spurgeon, oh, who was asked, do you think you'll see Wesley in heaven? And Spurgeon initially said no. And the student thought that he had, like, you know, dissed Arminians as much as could be. And then Spurgeon said, because he'll be so much more closer to Jesus because of how holy he was. Which I think is beautiful, man. I mean, Spurgeon couldn't have been more of a Calvinist, but he... He saw a life of holiness and a guy that he theologically disagreed with and could respect that. All right, so let's move on to part seven here. And man, again, that's just such a gross oversimplification of the Puritans and the Great Awakening and George Whitfield, so forgive me. But uh, history is not, at this point, eternal, and so let's we won't make this class eternal either. We'll keep moving on. So part seven, we're going to look more at the global church. And we'll just try and get through these two pages today. So in this unit, you have strategic thinkers who are facing a shifting world order, who are coping with social and political changes, 
and who will find new ways to explain the faith both locally and globally at home and abroad. We need to cover some factors that influenced this era, that influenced the global church. The first one would be revolution. Um, human history has always been crazy and probably no era has been more crazy than any other era, but this really was a, a really intense time. And so we're gonna cover some of the ways revolution would set the stage for this point in human history. First, you have political revolution. Beginning in France with the French Revolution, well, actually the American Revolution was before the French Revolution, but the French Revolution would have more probably religious consequences for intellectual thought in relation to religion. The American Revolution would have a lot of consequence for the way the church would interact with the state in the country of America. But sort of overarchingly in the way the, the, the culture would shift towards sort of rationalism, the French Revolution was more consequential. So the, uh, some backstory here. The mismanaged monarchy of King Louis XVI produced a lot of poverty and hunger in the middle and lower class. Um, France was kind of just a mess. You know, the whole uh, Marie Antoinette, you know, Marie, the people are starving. Oh, let them eat cake. Well, jerk, you have cake. They literally have nothing, right? It's, it's an illustration of the detachment of the financial aristocracy elite versus the impoverished people. That's kind of the idea that you have going on here. Okay, so July 14, 1789, the people of Paris captured the Bastille in Paris, which ultimately resulted in a reorganization of the French government. That's a, also a massive overstatement of what took place. Um, the book Les Miserables is uh, taking place in this era. And so the, cap, the, the Bastille was a fort, a, a political fort, um, a, a seat of power in Paris. And the people captured the Bastille. Actually, in that same revolution, they would also bust down the doors of Notre Dame Cathedral and I mentioned here the cult of reason. They literally formed a new religion and they would tear down all the, all the statues, all the icons in Notre Dame and would set up this statue to the cult of reason. And for a time, Notre Dame became basically a, a sanctuary to the secular. Uh, it didn't last too long, but the French revolutionaries did become increasingly hostile to the church, believing that science and reason would overcome the superstition and corruption of the religious elites. So the church has always had this problem where you get sort of a Christian aristocracy. It was never meant to be like that, but through church history there's been that problem, particularly in relation to Catholicism. And uh, so the, the French revolutionaries thought that religion was superstitious and corrupt, and they had a better way. We want to go to science and reason and secularism. <clears throat> As part of this revolution, between 2,000 and 5,000 priests who refused to swear allegiance to the French idea of secularism were ultimately executed by guillotine. Um, you don't hear too much about this. You know, you hear about like religious persecution and the Crusades and the Inquisition. Well, this was like a reverse Inquisition. French secularists executed <coughs> priests. And maybe some of those guys were corrupt and needed to be executed, but if, if it's as high as 5,000, there's no way all of those guys were bad guys. 
1798, France would invade the lands owned by the Pope and the Catholic Church. They captured Pope Pius VI, and they took him prisoner to France. This just shows the ways in which religion and politics were sort of mixed up in the Catholic Church in ways they shouldn't have been. This uh, revolution would finally settle down when Napoleon Bonaparte rose to power in 1799. And he knew that he needed to find some middle ground here. And so he worked to sort of find a reconciling position between the religious, the, the, the religious people and the secular people. And that goes into a whole other thing on just world history that we're not going to go into with Napoleon and uh, the Napoleonic Wars. In America, there was also revolution. So financial, political, and religious oppression led to the British colonies declaring independence. I'm not going to go into this. I assume you know some basic American history, you know, the, the Tea Party and things like that. Um, but it was all these things together. It was religious. It was political. It was financial. And America established a, a constitutional republic with the founding belief that the state should have no inf influence upon the free exercise of religion, speech, or ideas. Um, our, our forefathers understood that in order, for, in order for truth to continue to kind of rise to the surface, you have to allow discussion that includes non-truth. Um, or, or ultimately what ends up being stamped out is not Wrong, not untruth, but truth. That's interesting to think about in light of big corporations trying to stomp out misinformation. What ends up really happening is you stomp out truth. I mean, you don't ultimately do that because Christ is truth, and good luck with that. Uh, they believed in religious freedom, and you know, there's just a note on on its importance here. Christians, I think, generally should support religious freedom, the freedom of speech, the freedom of thought. And the reason is because you can't compel heart transformation. So you'll hear people say, you can't legislate morality. That's stupidity. You can legislate morality. What you can't legislate is transformed a, 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 a heart that goes from death to life. Only God can do that. So, you know, the guys who are theonomists, it depends on their motivation, but I would reject the idea that we should have a Christian nation. And the reason is because then you lead people to believe that they're Christians when they're not. You get moral behavior out of them, but they still go to hell. Uh, so I think what's better is free, the free transfer of ideas so that people can encounter Christ and be transformed by him. And that's going to happen regardless of what kind of government you have. It's happening all over the place in Muslim countries, in China, in America, whatever. Okay, moving on. You also had philosophical revolution. So a French philosopher named Jean-Jacques Rousseau in 1782 wrote a book called The Confessions. Does that sound familiar? Anybody else know another name, name of a book called The Confessions? We mentioned it in class months ago. Augustine wrote a book called The Confessions where he talked about his religious conversion to Christianity. I, Jean Jacques Rousseau doesn't mention the confessions in his writing, but I think he is playing off of Augustine's ideas. But what he's pressing towards is nothing like what Augustine would say. Augustine would develop a theology that says man is inherently sinful. Jean Jacques Rousseau would develop a, a secular idea that man is inherently good. The problem with man is that we live in society, and society forces us into these 
boxes that are not our authentic self. And Jean-Jacques Rousseau, believing that man is inherently good, would say we need to press against society to be our inherent self, which is, if you think about it, the, um, the philosophy of, of the day. That think about you, you do you. We were just talking about that, Monica. You do you. You need to be your authentic self. Well, that, that goes back to Jean-Jacques Rousseau. If you really want to get into this more, there's a, a, a book that recently came out called um, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. It's a tough read. It's like it's it's an academic book. It's not an easy read, but he traces the development of this all the way back to Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Then you also have the rise of romanticism. So the self naturally good. You have the ethics of personal sentiment. What's good? What is what is good? Is what makes you sort of feel good. Okay, that's totally different than like what Aristotle was writing about. What is good? Um, <clears throat> And then you have modern psychology. So modern psychology shifts the focus. How do we, um, I mentioned this, Calvin begins his institutes by saying there can be no knowledge of God without knowledge of self. So where do we derive our knowledge of self? It's in relation to God. What has God revealed about man in scripture? Well, modern psychology says, how does man know who he is and what his purpose is? He looks inward. So this is a profound shift. Up until this point, at least in the Western world, man was looking towards God to understand things. Now, with the rise of modern psychology and the autonomous self, man is looking inward to understand himself. And you can see why things go horribly wrong. Because if you believe in the doctrine of original sin, what's man going to find inside of himself? He's going to find a mess. And if he lives that out, it's going to be a mess. Then you also have philosophical revolution with rationalism. So opinions and actions should be based on reason and knowledge rather than religion. This is a huge fundamental shift as well. Christianity would say we know things because God has revealed them to us. Uh, rationalism says we know things because through our senses and our minds we can understand them. Christians wouldn't wholeheartedly <clears throat> reject that. We would just say we can only ultimately understand them if we have the foundational Christian belief that revelation needs to come from God first. Then you have the Industrial Revolution, so you have urbanization. Uh, Wesley should be mentioned here and even the Salvation Army. As people move from the countryside to find hopefully better earnings working in factories and in cities, cities became overcrowded, poverty rose, prostitution rose. Um, you know, the family began to break down. You had tons of orphans, filthy streets, and misery. And you had ex exploitation of the workers. So that's where, like, unions come from. And Wesley would find a lot of movement in bringing these people hope. Uh, there's another really interesting book I wrote called uh, God, no, Guinness, Guinness and the Search for God. And it's about the founder of Guinness, uh, um, why can't I think of his name? Arthur, Arthur Guinness, who, who started this beer company and tons of his, his fortune would go to many of his children, instead of going into the family business, would take their inheritance and go into the city streets of London and do amazing humanitarian work, not just for the sake of humanitarian work, but in Christ's name, because they were sincere believers. And quite a few of the universities in the Americas, one of them in particular, I think it might be Princeton, 
or maybe Yale, got a lot of its founding money from Guinness. Uh, that book was written by a secular dude. He's not a Christian, but it was a fascinating read. Okay, so that's where things like the Salvation Army came from. That, you know, it's tough to proclaim Christ to somebody if they have a, an empty belly. And James essentially says the same thing, right? It's not okay for you to go to people, oh, be well and be warm while they're starving. You know, Jesus cares about the, the physical material world. Now, that's not all he cares about, and that's not primarily what he cares about. But to couple the gospel, the good news of God's loving grace available to you through Christ with a, a meeting physical needs is an important piece of this. Okay, and then you have ideological revolution. So within this, capitalism is going to really change the world. It's going to grow the middle class. It's going to shrink the aristocracy. Um, and then in addition to that, communism and socialism. So communism and socialism are inherently secular worldviews. You cannot have a religion within communism or secularism. And the reason is because religion claims that there is something beyond this material world that matters. And as soon as you do that, you undermine the power of a government that says all that matters is the material world. So this is why the socialists and the communists attempt to stomp out religion very quickly. Thoughts, questions, comments on that background? Okay. The Second Great Awakening. We don't have time to get into this. There's some controversy with this, and so I don't want to try and... I mean, I could read the bullet points in three minutes, but we wouldn't have time to talk about it. So we'll pause there. I'll bring you new notes next week. I haven't quite finished this, so I'll finish it this week, and I'll bring you a new set of notes next week. But let me again just close in prayer. Lord, we thank you that even in a changing world, a world that is constantly changing, you are a steadfast rock, and you're a place of rest, and you're our rescue, and you are unchanging. And what you have revealed to us is true. And we praise you for those things. And I pray that we would just anchor our souls in those things. Whatever the future may hold for us as believers, I pray that even studying church history would remind us and encourage us that you're good and that things are in control because you reign. In Christ's name, amen. amen.